Welcome to the Melancholy of Class podcast. Here in episode four, we'll be discussing Walter Benjamin's essay on the concept of history. But first off, we opened up with the Falls container drivers from the album Grotesque. I can't say enough about the fall. In fact, I won't stop talking about the fall. First and foremost, what I find most especially exhilarating about the band is their structure. Their songs to begin with, and yes, I know I've already spoken at length about this in our previous podcasts, but as I said, I can't say enough about them. The structure of their songs is montage-like, which is to say global, whole, inclusive of everything. As we will discuss briefly, this is not unlike Walter Benjamin's concept of history. You could say Benjamin's argument is that history has been told by the victors, which is to say history, our history, is the history of the ruling class. History is a curatorial project curated by those in power, in other words. The working class, those who are oppressed, are not included, we are excluded. But his aim is for all of history to be included in what we call history. In Benjamin's essay on the concept of history, in Thesis 3, he writes the following. A chronicler who recites events without distinguishing between major and minor ones acts in accordance with the following truth. Nothing that has ever happened should be regarded as lost for history. To be sure, 
only redeemed mankind receives the fullness of the past, which is to say, only for a redeemed mankind has its past become citable in all its moments. Not unlike his own work and, for example, his project, The Arcades Project, a compendium of citations on the city life of Paris in the 19th century. This never-finished archival project includes both his own writings and quotations or citations by other writers without context. The text then becomes a constellation or amalgamation. And yet with The Fall, with the songs by The Fall, for instance, with their songs The Garden and the NWRA, the structure is of a palimpsest, of multiple layers, of more and more being added on, and yet they remain holes. Despite the wholeness of the songs, they somehow remain porous. There is room for the listener to enter, to get lost within the labyrinthine structure of the songs. Anyway, the opening song, Container Drivers, is by The Fall. Now, I realized when piecing this episode together that I don't think I explained why Benjamin's work is so important to me. Why, in other words, I have included two of his essays in this podcast. Why we're spending two podcasts talking about his work. So, uh, apologize for that. <clears throat> and now let me spend a little bit of time addressing this. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of my coming across Benjamin's work and how that changed and what that change means. So, the first time I came across Benjamin's work, not as a citation or as a mere quote, but rather the first time I read his work in its entirety was some time after grad school for poetry. I, grad school for poetry, what I mean to say. I knew his name, and I knew he was important. Benjamin's name is often cited in contemporary U.S. poetry, or I should say, uh, though I never hear people actually discussing his work or his ideas or thoughts, his writing is often utilized as an opening quote or citation for collections of poetry and other forms of literary writing, by which I mean what is called in the U.S. literary fiction or literary nonfiction, this kind of uh, work. This is how I was introduced to his work. I somehow came across enough quotes and references to the angel of history, for instance, an opening of books of poetry, so that I went out and bought his illuminations. Now, I won't get into the translation of his work, German into English, which translations are better and why. For uh, uh, That's a whole other can of worms that I will set aside for now. What I can say is that I read his essays and I loved his writing, though aside from its beauty and mystery, I don't think I could have said why at the time. <clears throat> Years later, when I attended art school, I read Benjamin's work in a more structured way, which is to say I read his essays in classes with other students, with uh, professors leading us. We read his essay on surrealism. We read the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and some others. The main consensus there among my classmates seemed to be that he was wacky, he was odd, that he was strange, that his writing was strange, that it was a mix between Jewish mysticism and art criticism. We also read Michael Tausig's book, Tausig's book, Walter Benjamin's Grave, and got hooked into his sorrow, which seemed an enigmatic melancholia, which is to say a melancholy without any purpose or reason. But later, while studying German language and literature at Rutgers, I read his work in a course on the Frankfurt School. Here I read his essay on Baudelaire and on Proust. And then later, when I enrolled in a course on tragedy, I wrote a paper on Benjamin where I focused on this text, Origin of the German Trauerspiel. 
here with this text and with this paper that I wrote, I began to understand his concept of melancholia. Though I was not unaware that his works, or at least most of his works, were political, I remained, even at this point, unaware that he is a Marxist, and similarly unaware of his alignment with the working class. And much of this blindness on my part had to do with the fact that Benjamin was never discussed in this way. He was never discussed in my experience in academia, in various forms of academia. He was never in discussed in relation to either topic. Uh, Marxism, Marx, communism, or uh, class, social class, and the working class. In addition, because I was unaware of the way social class worked, when I read his essays, I also remained unaware of these aspects. This is, I think, a really important part. Um, but after reading the work of Mark Fisher, I began to understand my own place in society, my own social class, and as I've said before, I began to better understand my life and my family's life. At that point, everything changed for me. This was the crucial hinge upon which I can now mark a distinct beginning and ending. Once this change happened, everything changed, which is to say, I changed. And perhaps more specifically, um, my experience in the world changed. The structure of my experience in the world changed. Everything I encountered looked different. Then when I read Benjamin's work, I saw his references to the class struggle where I hadn't before. Um, these references are, of course, explicit. He says these things very clearly. Um, and then I was able to understand why I'd always felt a kinship with this work, which is, um, which is also really um, interesting to me, right? So in The Melancholy of Class, my book, I write about how even in high school, though I had no um, comprehension of class, social class, my place in it, when I listened to the jam, for example, I just felt a kinship. I felt like uh, Paul Weller and the band were singing on my behalf. I could totally relate. It just, there was a, right, there was just a sense. Um, and it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, yeah, that's right, because they were talking about my actual experiences or um, experiences I was having that I did not yet have language for. Um, so there's something really important here about how, um, and I've said this before in a previous podcast, how the working class, working poor, how we already have all of um, the information within us, right? We already have our lived experience. For me, what was lacking, and you can see this in my um, chronicling of my experience with Walter Benjamin's work, is that I, um, certain parts of, uh, because I did not have language for class or uh, social class, um, I was not able to see it in my own life. This is much of what my first book was about, is this, um, you know, internalizing of um, people's shaming of me or um, rejection of me and me feeling like it was because there was something wrong with me. When I finally had access to um, these concepts, then I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's not what it is. It's not me. It's um, the people who are doing this to me are the middle class um, because I'm working class, right? And that it's like a knife through butter, it cut through everything. Um, but the point here is that for me, um, like the jam when I was in high school, reading Benjamin's work just felt organic. I just completely understood, even before I fully understood. And I think that's just really important again. Um, and also just to reiterate that, um, you know, my argument 
for myself isn't that I needed, you know, all this information poured into my brain. I actually had most of it already within me. And this um, lived experience, right, um, which I describe, you know, my father has this also. Of course, we all have this, but um, I've talked about my father in terms of this um, specific topic. Um, then once we have the concept, right, then, um, then everything, everything comes together, right? Then we're able to articulate our experiences in context to um, social class. Um, anyway, there's the Benny meme. Um, so all of this is to say how I was introduced to the work of Walter Benjamin. As it turns out, his work was actually alongside me for a very long time, a companion of sorts. I read and understood much of it, but it was as if certain portions of his work, everything to do with social class, the working class, and Marx, had been erased. In a culture that believes there are no social classes, believes there is no working class, is unable to see social class or the working class, and this is true even for the working class. So I'll just say on my own, in my own experience, this was my case also, right? Um, without the language necessary to articulate social class or the working class, it remained, I remained ignorant to class, even when it was right in front of me, in, for instance, Walter Benjamin's writing, or in my own life, right? So this, again, is, I think, really key, right? And, and you can see how, um, so when Benjamin's talking about um, the ruling class, Mm, I'll talk about it in a bit, but about the ruling class uh, documenting history, right? And so the working class, the oppressed, are left outside of history. This is also um, akin to the way that we're taught, right? So I was taught nothing about social class. I was taught nothing about the working class. Uh, I'm told in my culture there is no working class, there are no social classes. And so I was blind to it myself, even though it was my own experience, right? And of course, Gramsci talks about this also. So after reading the work of Mark Fisher, I read Benjamin's essays and especially his essays on some motifs in Baudelaire and on the concept of history. And I was astounded how social class and the working class are front and center to his work, of course. I was especially interested in his concept of history and redemption and the importance of the oppressed, who he specifically names as the working class in the redemption of history, in the act of redeeming the lives of the working class who history, which is to say the ruling class, has deliberately left out but this we will get to a bit later when we discuss the essays. All this is to say that Benjamin's writing, in particular, these two specific essays, the two that I'm talking about in this podcast and, and last podcast, have been incredibly important to my own understanding of my role as a writer and my role as a member of the working class. Now on to the essay. So the essay is constructed of 18 sections. Each section is separated by a Roman numeral. The structure, the way each section is separated from the others with a number, suggests that the essay cannot be understood as one cohesive piece, but rather that the essay works more as a kind of montage where each bit adds equally to the meaning of the overall work. Um, and so, of course, you can see the relationship between the construction of this essay and what Benjamin is talking about in terms of history, right? That all of history needs to be included. And he's also talking about the inclusion of citation, right? So we use citation, we include everything. So this is also the way that he's kind of creating or constructing this essay, which brings us back to the fall and the structure of the music by the fall, especially these um, larger songs, the garden or the 
and WRA, the way that they're created, um, like a series, like a montage, a bunch of different bits cut and pasted and put together. Again, very similar um, construction to what Ben Ewing is talking about, a kind of constellation of sorts. Um, another aspect that is crucial to Benjamin's work and therefore important to mention is how in his writings he does not explain or otherwise provide context, right? So like Baudelaire, he writes about his poems of crowds never explicitly state they are taking place in a crowd, but rather they convey to the reader what it feels like to be inside a crowd. Benjamin's writing likewise resists summary. <clears throat> and again, to go back to the fall, right, same thing. Um, so we're going to begin our discussion of the essay by beginning in the middle with thesis 14. This thesis, this piece, begins with a short quote by Karl Krauss, Origin is the Goal. The quote is from a poem of Krauss's, Der Sterbende Mensch, The Dying Man, a work that troubles the concept of origin and movement. And the word origin, if the word origin means something like a beginning and goal conversely means the aim or ending, how do we make sense of Krauss's origin is a goal? One way to imagine this movement he is suggesting from the beginning to the end as a form is as a form of static or a form of dialectic. To remain at the beginning, at the origin, to have origin as the goal is to remain at this site, and yet, because we also have the word goal, seal, in the phrase, we know there must also be a form of movement. This movement then can be imagined as the movement between the two terms. At the same time, we might think of this movement as an incremental movement akin to what happens with compulsive repetition. The word repetition means to say or do again, get back, demand the return of. And so repetition in itself already includes both the concept of stasis, of stuckness, and of movement. In other words, Karl Krauss's sentence, origin is the goal, enacts the very movement it is addressing because it insists on the importance of origin beginning while simultaneously, due to the sentence's inclusion of is the goal, it motions toward movement, a movement away from origin. In this poem, Der Sterbende Mensch, from where this quote originates, Krauss writes, Du bleibst am, Umsch du bleibst am Ursprung, Ursprung ist das Ziel, or you stay at the origin, origin is the goal. Again, a sense of contradiction, of both staying and leaving. Indeed, I think we could say that both sentences are speculative. Describing the speculative sentence in his preface to the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel writes, take the proposition, God is being. The predicate is being. It has a substantial meaning in which the subject melts away. Upon our first reading, origin is the goal. The word origin is the subject. But as we read and reread the sentence, origin moves to the place of the predicate, goal. Because we can't understand what has happened to the subject, it's vanished into the predicate, we are pulled back to the sentence's beginning. In this way, our mind is caught up in a circuitous loop of compulsive repetition. We keep rereading the sentence trying to determine what has happened, and each time we end up back at the sentence's beginning again. And it is through this process of reading and rereading that we're able to encounter our error and that we arrive finally at truth. Indeed, this very movement, according to Hegel, is truth. Truth is this movement, this vacillation.
course, also, Krauss's two sentences correspond to the situation the working class find ourselves within. The antidote to melancholy of class is, return, is to return in some way to our working class origins. This may mean actually moving back to origin, to our home. But more often than not, it, it simply means the acceptance of our working class origins. This is also a move to the origins, right? When the working class subject makes this move, when we recognize our place in the class struggle, everything changes because the structure of our experience changes. Our thinking is altered. This very move back to our working class origins in order to move forward, to move closer to emancipation of the working class, is not unlike Krauss's sentence. Furthermore, the repetition is by definition a form of being trapped in the same repetitive cycle. It is also possible to move through repetition by accruing momentum, through incremental momentum which accrues over time, and thus blasting out of the paralysis of it. Now, according to Lacan, it is the real that destroys the subject, but it is also the real that becomes known through repetition. This explains compulsive repetition and why we desire to return to what causes us pain. Trauma is that which we are unable to fathom. As Freud writes, when we experience trauma, the shock of it, the shock of the trauma absorbs the trauma. What the psyche is unable to fathom will remain forever, but within our unconscious. What this means is that though we won't be able to recall the trauma, the trauma will nonetheless haunt us through symptoms, the structure of our lives, and through compulsive repetition. According to Freud, a symptom is a sign of and a substitute for an instinctual satisfaction which has remained in abeyance. It is a consequence of the process of repression. Repression proceeds from the ego when the latter, it may at the best, it may be at the behest of the superego, refuses to associate itself with an instinctual cathexis which has been aroused in the id. The ego is able to the ego is able by means of repression to keep the idea which is the vehicle of the reprehensible impulse from becoming conscious. Analysis shows that the idea is often analysis shows that the idea often persists as an unconscious formation. The thought or trauma is, in other words, too awful for the psyche to withstand. And so it represses it down into the unconscious where it remains. But because it exists in the unconscious, it is never resolved or otherwise worked through or dealt with. In its place, a symptom appears, a kind of marker or placeholder. It's beautiful, you have to admit, how this happens, how the psyche displaces what it knows the subject is unable at the time to digest, displacing it, keeping it in the mind but out of sight. And as Zizek writes, repetition relies on the blockage of direct positive affirmation. We repeat because it is impossible to directly affirm. Indeed, as Zizek points out in the same essay, The Politics of Negativity, in his introduction to Frank Root as Hegel's Rabble, Freud deploys a whole series, system even, of negation in the unconscious, throwing out of the eagle, Ausstoßung, rejection, Verwerfung, repression, Verdrangung, itself divided into primordial repression, Ur-Verdrangung, and normal repression, disavowal, Verleugnung, denial, Verneinung, up to the complex mode of how acceptance itself can function as a mode of denial, as is 
the case in so-called isolation, isoleron, where traumatic fact is rationally accepted but isolated from its libidinal symbolic context. My eating disorder, for example, is a means for my psyche to both protect myself from an in my initial trauma, which is subsumed beneath the symptom of the eating disorder, and at the same time, it becomes a way to reenact the initial trauma without actually ever touching its wound. What appears on the surface to be mere repetition and thus an endless stuckness can also be understood as a radical possibility for change in that these repetitions, though they may appear the same and may indeed be identical, accrue. So rather than creating an obvious horizontal or literal change, what is experienced is a change in depth. Furthermore, each of the identical repetitions are indeed different from one another due to this accruing or inherent alteration in depth. One way to think of this is to imagine a song in which the same refrain, same words are repeated and yet with each repetition the volume increases incrementally. Such work creates momentum and the inevitability of revolution. Indeed, what we are describing here might be called a revolving vis-a-vis -vis repetition. Indeed, the word revolve has its origins in the late 14th century with the word revolven, which means to change, change direction, bend around. From Old French revolver, from the Latin revolver, with its definition of roll back, unroll, unwind, happen again, return, go over, repeat. The word revolution has its origin in the world, in the word revolver, is what I mean to say. Anyway. Let's return to Benjamin's essay. In particular, let us return to his 14th thesis in which he writes the following. History is the subject of a structure whose site is not homogeneous, empty time, but time filled by the presence of the now, yet site. Thus, to Robespierre, ancient Rome was a past charged with the time of the now which he blasted out of the continuum of history. The French Revolution viewed itself as Rome reincarnate. It evoked ancient Rome the way fashion evokes costumes of the past. Fashion has a flair for the topical, no matter where it stirs in the thickets of long ago. It is a tiger's leap into the past. This jump, however, takes place in an arena where the ruling class gives a command. The same leap in the open air of history is the dialectical one, which is how Marx understood the revolution. Now here, when Benjamin introduces this thesis with Karl Krauss's quote, Krauss's quote sounds not unlike the psychoanalytic concept of the drive or the death drive. Or maybe I should say not here, but back there. I'm still on the Karl Krauss quote. Sorry about that. Um, but when Benjamin introduces this quote, it's not unlike the psychoanalytic concept of the drive or the death drive, the maddening circuit of energy that does that gains momentum as it repeats. It overlaps itself, repeating into infinity. The aim of the drive is both death and its origins. Describing the uncanny in his essay, The Uncanny, Freud writes, Dism dismembered limbs, a severed head, a hand cut off at the wrist, feet which dance by themselves. All these have something peculiarly uncanny about them, especially when, as in the last instance, they prove able to move of themselves in addition. As we already know, this kind of uncanniness springs from its association with the castration complex. To many people, the idea of being buried alive while appearing to be dead is the most uncanny thing of all, and yet psychoanalysis has taught us that this terrifying fantasy is only a transformation of another fantasy, which had originally nothing terrifying about it at all, 
but was filled with a certain lustful pleasure, the fantasy, I mean, of intrauterine existence. Here then, at the end of this paragraph of the uncanny, Freud connects death with pre-birth, or the origin with the end, returning us back to Karl Krauss's origin is the end. Now, returning back to Benjamin's 14th thesis, when Benjamin writes that the revolutionary must loop back into history en route to the present, the tigers leap into the past, he may as well be describing the death drive, the circuit of endless movement, moving from beginning to end, with its aim, the aim of both total destruction and absolute beginning, a desire for death in order to start all over again. Now, the original, the original German word Benjamin uses is Ursprung, and it consists of the prefix or, which means out of, and the word sprung, which translates to a well and means to spring or jump and to rise up or spring, spring up. This word then, origin, means both to leap out of and spring out of. The latter definition correlates directly to Benjamin's idea of leaping into the past. Benjamin's concept of the tiger's leap into the past and the death drive are not the same, of course. Benjamin's concept is a means to redeem the past, the haunting specters, while the death drive occurs in the interior. And yet the structure of the circuitous move back through the origin en route to the present is similar, as is the doubling effect inherent in the drive, its aim both for death and rebirth, and in Benjamin's definition of history. Under all of its circuitry, the death drive's main aim is its origins, along with its end. It clears the deck, begins anew, by returning to the beginning and destroying the now. Furthermore, in this thesis, Benjamin describes the energy inherent in history with now time, drawing a parallel between moments of the past and contemporary time, suggesting that specific moments in history correlate with the now. He writes, History is the subject of a structure whose sight is not homogeneous, empty time, but time filled with the presence of the now, yet sight. An example, as an example of this phenomenon, Benjamin tells us, thus to Robespierre, ancient Rome was a past charged with the time of the now, which he blasted out of the continuum of history. This potential then lies in the past in history, awaiting our intervention. In a footnote to the essay in Illuminations, Hannah Arendt notes that Benjamin's use of the term yet sight is not simply an equivalent to the German word Gegenwart, that is present. Rather, he is thinking of the mystical nonsense, which refers to eternal existence, time not subject to the limitation of time. For Benjamin, yet sight describes a concept of time filled with revolutionary promise, opposed to empty homogenous time. Here in the thesis, he uses the French Revolution to help us understand his concept of time. Benjamin writes the following. History is the subject of a structure whose sight is not homogeneous, empty time, but time filled by the presence of the now, yet sight. Thus, to Robespierre, ancient Rome was a past charge with the time of the now which he blasted out of the continuum of history. The French Revolution viewed itself as Rome reincarnate. It evoked ancient Rome the way fashion evokes costumes of the past. Benjamin's method was to unleash the enormous energies of history that are bound up in the once upon a time of class classical historiography. The history that showed things as they really were was, he writes, the strongest narcotic of the century. For Benjamin, the means through which to liberate these energies bound in the past was through the use of the quotation. 
Benjamin believed the practice of citation could serve as the bridge that links past and present in the dialectical fabrication of historical experience. The act of lifting the shards and fragments of history through the employment of citation is opposed to the usual means of regarding history as a fixed or flattened solid mass, or imagining history as being constructed of important parts, battles won, for example, with what is considered not, not history, the lives of the working class, for example, left out. Instead, what Benjamin is arguing on behalf of is a constellation or montage-like structure in which all of history might be included, everything that happened all the lives of everyone. Likened to montage, collage, and assemblage, Benjamin's concept, due to its inherent dialectical nature, implies a sense of movement, each disparate bit, shard, or image situated near one another like a movable part. This concept suggests a means of moving the past, as if lifting a net of loose bits up and into the now. A process that Benjamin describes in the original German, using the Hegelian term Aufhebel. It is our job, Benjamin insists, it is the job of the working class to locate these bits and shards and redeem the lives of those excluded from history, the working class, the oppressed. Okay, we're past break time. Let's take a brief pause, grab something to snack on, a beer, have a cigarette and some candy, and I'll see you on the other side. And during the break, I'm going to play The Falls, Pay Your Rates from the album Grotesque. <laughs> Hey, go! 
calls pay your rates from grotesque. Okay, let's move on to Benjamin's thesis 17, where he writes the following. The historical materialist approaches a historical object where it confronts him as a monad. In this structure, he recognizes the sign of, messian of a messianic arrest of happening, or to put it differently, a revolutionary chance in the fight for the oppressed past. It is in his description of how these fragments of the past can be blasted away that he writes, as a result of this method, the life work is both preserved and sublated in the work, the era in the life work, and the entire course of history in the era. It is here in the sentence in the original German that Benjamin uses the term Aufhebung. Aufhebung is a notoriously untranslatable word because it holds a number of opposite meanings to negate, to cancel, annihilate, preserve, and to lift. Similar to Freud's term Verneinung, Aufhebung brings us not back to the object that was not meant, mother for Freud, but rather something preserved that can only be brought about through its negation. In other words, whatever it preserves is preserved by being activated through the dialectical movement. So just really quickly, so the, the Verneinung, um, I write about this in the book, but in case you haven't read the book, um, this is this idea that Freud brings about where he talks about the, um, the, the patient who comes in and says, you know, it was not my mother in the dream. And he says this uh, without provocation. So he says it without Freud asking. He just says it. Um, and so when he says, no, it wasn't my mother in the dream, then, of course, we know it was the mother, right? Um, so this is what we're talking about when I talk about um, Freud's Verneinung. Furthermore, these intervals or ruptures result in spaces where a dialectic, a form of question arises, and with it, an entirely new possibility. At the same time, within these hesitations or pauses, a kind of death enters, a form of haunting or ghosting. These instances of dialectical thinking are what Benjamin called historical awakening, or moments when the present and the past appear as one, and access to a forgotten past becomes possible. In other words, it is by looping back into the past through these momentary gaps and fissures that we can access the forgotten moments of the past and, by including them in our own work, redeem these shards of the past, the history, and the lives that have been forgotten. Thinking again about the structure of this essay, how it is constructed of disparate numbered bits or sections, each of which is, as I'm sure you've already noticed, extremely dense, compressed, and yet between each of these is a space, a space which allows for kind of porousness throughout the whole piece, right? These spaces between each numbered thesis allows us, the readers, to enter, to move about within the essay. Also, because the essay is constructed of a number of disparate sections, there is implicit in the structure a series of gaps or ruptures, the spaces that occur between each section, within which a dialectical movement can occur. Remembering again how Hegel describes a dialectic as a movement, it is within the dialectic that a moment of instability occurs, we can better understand the inherent potential in Benjamin's essay due to its structure. Now back to the essay. In his twelfth thesis, he writes the following, Not man or men, but the struggling oppressed class itself is the depository of historical knowledge. Here, as he does elsewhere, Benjamin is quite clear in regard to who carries historical knowledge. Not man or men, but the struggling oppressed class itself is the depository of historical knowledge. In Marx, it appears as the last enslaved class, as the avenger that completes the task of liberation in the name of generations of the downtrodden. 
In fact, the work we are meant to do, according to Benjamin here, is simply being. We have within us our history, a history erased, cut out of history. So our mere existence already in itself makes this excluded history manifest, brings it to light. It is important here to note that Benjamin does not speak of the future. He's not talking about how the working class are going to change the future. In fact, in the specific thesis, he writes that focusing on the future blinds the working class from the past, from the working class's exclusion from history. He writes the following. Social democracy thought fit to assign to the working class the role of the redeemer of future generations. In this way, cutting the sinews of its greatest strength. This training made the working class forget both its hatred and its spirit of sacrifice, for both are nourished by the age of enslaved ancestors rather than that of liberated grandchildren. So now, when we return to Thesis 14, which we already discussed, that thesis becomes more clear. It springs to life. Let's look at the opening sentence of that thesis again. History is the subject of a structure whose sight is not homogeneous empty time, but time filled by the presence of the now, yet sight. Now, after reading Thesis 12, and Benjamin's emphasis on our looking to the past, to the work of redemption for our, as he writes, enslaved ancestors, the sentence becomes ever more filled with meaning. In the same way Robespierre saw the ancient Rome as a past charged with the time of the now, when we look back to the past, when we see our enslaved ancestors, the working class cut out from history, we can locate a past charged with the time of the now. Indeed, its inverse, looking to the future, suggests a kind of numbness from the past, a turning away and forgetting of the past and those left behind. Looking to the future is also about us, about me, where the past, where I was not, is, in relation to Benjamin's project, about those who remain anonymous, the forgotten. And on the concept of history, Benjamin insists our fight is for those who came before us. Our fight is for the redemption of the ghosts of the past, whose lives and histories have been made forgotten. And yet the work of our work won't be made clear except retroactively, as Hegel writes. The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only when the coming, with the coming of the dusk, or what Freud calls Noctoglishkeit. In other words, the small acts we take... Coming to class consciousness, for example, recognizing ourselves in the communal class struggle, trying to build alternative wor worlds for us, set apart from the middle class world we find ourselves in. These steps are both monumental and yet may remain invisible until much, much later when all these small acts we are engaging in now manifest in something larger, something entirely new. In fact, until the history of the oppressed, these ghosts of the past have been redeemed. We too are ghosts haunting, zombie-like automat Matins repeating compulsively until we are heard, until our pasts have been allowed to speak, make their mark in the books of history. Moving backwards now, let's take a look at Thesis 2. In the second half of that section, Benjamin writes the following. The past carries with it a temporal index by which it is referred to redemption. There's a secret agreement between past generations and the present one. Our coming was expected on earth. Like every generation that precedes us, we have been endowed with a weak messianic power, a power to which the past has a claim. There's a lot here, of course, but what I'd like to point out is Benjamin's sentence. There is a secret agreement between past generations and the present one. Here Benjamin does not shy away from his conviction that the working class has a responsibility and that 
that responsibility is the redemption of the past, of the ghosts of the past, to redeem the forgotten lives of the oppressed working classes. Now in Thesis 5, when Benjamin writes, the true picture of the past flits by, the past can be seized only as an image which flashes up at the instant when it can be recognized and is never seen again, we gain a better understanding of what is at stake. This idea of the true history of the past appearing in a flash and then vanishing is striking, of course. Later in the same thesis, he writes, reiterating this idea, for every image of the past that is not recognized by the present as one of its own concerns threatens to disappear irretrievably. We might understand these flashes as not unlike what Benjamin writes about in, in On Some Motifs in Baudelaire when he describes the two types of memory. The one that consists of the actual events, the day, the event, and the other type of memory that is fleeting, that cannot be recalled upon a will, that comes only when we do not expect it. This latter type of memory seems to be akin to what Benjamin is describing here in relation to flashes of history, like memoir involuntaire. If they arise, they must be captured, or if not, they will die out and never reappear again. Looking at Thesis 6, we can gather more information in this regard when Benjamin writes the following. To articulate the past historically does not mean to recognize it the way it really was. It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up at a moment of danger. This danger is described a bit later in the same thesis when Benjamin writes, the danger affects both the content of the tradition and its receivers. The, sa the same threat hangs over both, that of becoming a tool of the ruling classes. In the selected writings, edited by Michael Jennings, the same section reads as following. It's a little different, so I'm going to read it. Articulating the past historically does not mean recognizing it the way it really was. It means appropriating a memory as it flashes up in a moment of danger. Historical materialism wishes to hold fast that image of the past which unexpectedly appears to the historical subject in a moment of danger. The danger threatens both the content of the tradition and those who inherit it. For both it is one and the same thing, the danger of becoming a tool of the ruling classes. Every age must drive a new to rest tradition away from the conformism that is working to overpower it. Here in the second rendition of the writing, of his writing, I think it becomes quite apparent what the true danger is. It is conformism. It is the danger of becoming, as Benjamin writes, a tool for the ruling classes. Suspicion is part of this, and here I'm reminded of his essay, Surrealism, where he writes, Where are the conditions for revolution? In the changing of attitudes or of external circumstances? This is the cardinal question that determines the relation of politics to morality and cannot be glossed over. Surrealism has come ever closer to the communist answer, and that means pessimism all along the line, absolutely. Mistrust in the fate of literature, mistrust in the fate of freedom, mistrust in the fate of European humanity, but three times mistrust in all reconciliation between classes, between nations, between individuals. Benjamin was, of course, a philosopher of mistrust, of suspicion, of pessimism, cynicism. Optimism is not the same as hope. Hope suggests there is a point to living, that life has meaning. This can be true regardless of material circumstances. In contrast, optimism is a philosophy of positivity, an ideology that has found its place in contemporary capitalism and its motto of thinking, positive thoughts, and self-help. In the idea that if, regardless of our material circumstances, regardless of our class background, if we just try hard enough, we can search forward, which is contemporary which in contemporary parlance means, of course, that we can transcend our social class. 
The word pessimism originates with Schopenhauer and means the worst condition possible, point of greatest deterioration. A pessimist is one who habitually expects the worst, one who exaggerates the evils of life, one given to melancholy or depressing views and according to Knowles Dictionary, 1835, which defines the word pessimist as one who is a universal complainer. By examining what is not working in our society, by, in other words, feeling free to express our complaints and then analyzing them, though, we might just be able to find a way to transcend the current condition. In other words, I'm pro-complaining. I'm pro-pessimism and cynicism. I like detective novels. Optimism is a belief system available only to the bourgeoisie, to those whose needs are being met, to have the luxury to contemplate more possibilities for personal, which is to say monetary and material growth. In capitalism, the only growth worth our time is monetary, or so we are told. Optimism is just one more word for speculation, and by speculation here, I am referring to financial speculation, which stands in sharp contrast to philosophy of speculation. The former is a means of accruing more capital. Is a, is a, sorry, the former is a means of accruing more capital through wild and unrestrained means, while the latter is a mode of thinking that is, in contrast to financial speculation, grounded in a close adherence to and a working through of dialectics. As Hegel writes, contradiction is the rule of the true, non-contradiction non of the false. We have run out of time as usual, and as usual, engaged only in a cursory examination of the texts. And yet, even this much can help us make an entryway into the work. It is a beginning. I'd like to end with a citation from Benjamin's thesis number eight, where he writes the following. The tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. We must attain to a conception of history that is in keeping with this insight. Thank you, as always, for joining me on episode four of The Melancholy of Class. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, this discussion, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we discuss the work of Clarice Lispector. Do send me an email with any questions or any thoughts or comments. I would love to hear from you. You can reach me at themelancholyofclass at gmail.com. Have a lovely couple of weeks, and I'll see you at episode five. In closing, because we've been talking about suspicion and detectives, we're going to end with Arab Strap's song, Love Detective, from their album, The Red Thread.
Church, you've got a little bit of 